Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your, frankly, run ragged host, uh, Florida Water Forklift. But I come to you nonetheless. Why? Because I must persevere for the good of you, the people. Fabulous episode here today. Uh, talking to Hoodoo Moses, a practitioner of Hoodoo, about his deeds and his doings, and he gets into specifics. And it's great. We get really into the theory of stuff. And I am so pleased that this episode is coming to you today, because we are smack dab between the feast day of St. Cyprian of Antioch, who many take to be sort of the patron saint of witchcraft and working with demons and all the sort of spooky stuff that we like to get up to, and the feast day of the Archangel Michael, who is a special patron of Hoodoo Moses. So that, you know... Feels like a, a nice little time to be nested. I was thinking recently about uh, St. Cyprian's Feast Day in light of what's been happening in the sky. I was informed by a local periodical here in New York City, a number one go Mets, I'm walking here, that Jupiter on St. Cyprian's Feast Day was the closest it was going to be to this, our starship Earth, for the next... 107 years. And that got me thinking about what are the Jupiterian aspects of Cyprian? Because, so, you know, Cyprian, like, you know, demons, ghosts, maybe. Yeah, there's at least one story of him with ghosts. You know, very Saturnine figure, I would say. But perhaps there's a Jupiterian element that is potentially getting lost, right? Especially Jupiter as the planet of bureaucracy, legalistics, big institutions, right? Like, as much as Cyprian might be our sort of intermediary between us and witchcraft, working with demons, all the fun stuff that we like to get up to, he might also be our intermediary to the big institutions. He is our, our, he's not just the patron saint of witchcraft, he's a saint and therefore has a connection to dealing with hierarchies and legalistics of Catholic faith, Eastern Orthodox faith, uh, I really should have pluralized Catholic, too, because I feel like there are a lot of Catholicisms. But you know what? It's fine. You know, like, how do we approach St. Cyprian, not just as the patron saint of witchcraft, but as a saint? An interesting thought I've been having. To me. Interesting to me. I was wondering if that would end up being one of those kind of, like, unpopular opinion type deals, but it seems kind of straightforward now that I've said it. Probably not. If you did dislike that opinion, feel free to go to at witchhassle on twitter.com and uh, yell at me and I'll have fun. That'll be fun for me because, you know, always just nice to hear from you. Here's the interview with Hoodoo Moses. Great talk. I want to flag something before the interview. Longtime listeners to listener-supported Witch Hassle know that there is a Patreon for this podcast. I try to bring it up as little as possible because I feel like it is gauche to talk about it. But... In this instance, I want to flag it because, as per my usual of late, I've been doing the thing where I interview somebody for a very long time and then, you know, cut it down to, like, an hour, put that in the free episode, and then put all the other stuff, the full thing, behind the Patreon for your delectation and edification. In this particular interview, the stuff that is going behind the Patreon is so juicy that I felt like I should tell you 
to just, you know, like, turn off the episode right now, just go to the Patreon and start listening to it there. Because in the Patreon-only bit, he gets into spiritual warfare. He gets into trapping spirits. He gets into a visionary experience that he had. It's, it's good. It's worth listening to, I would say. And then once you're there, all sorts of other bonus content for you to check out. But I already feel like I've been talking about this for too long. So here is Huda Moses. I hope you enjoy. Bop. Okay. Okay. So excited to have you on. This is very, very cool. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I feel like you could potentially talk about because you have just a wealth of knowledge and a wide array of doings and activities that you get up to. But the thing that kind of was the impetus for this, so I want to make sure we talk about that even like at the very, you know, big red letters at the very top. Uh, this Kickstarter thing you're doing. Yeah. Um, tell, tell me about it. So what's the basic premise of this? So are you familiar with the idea of a makerspace? It's I kind of am. more techie idea than a magic idea. I mean, at for least, the kids at home, you know. For the kids at home, we, sure. So the idea of a makerspace more traditionally is, let's say you want to learn to um, use a 3D printer and laser cut things and do all that stuff. And you don't want to invest in all the gear and the training. There's a makerspace that has these that are kind of held in common. And you can go down there and take lessons on how to use the stuff and make stuff. And then they become hubs for people who make stuff and really cool projects come out of them. I had my first encounter with a makerspace in Denver when I found plans on an internet on the internet to make a box that would pass electricity through my brain to change my cognitive patterns. And I convinced my wife to let me make it as long as I got help because I have no background in electronics. So enter the makerspace, right? And it went from me really making a fool of myself, like doing things that were laughably bad to someone being like, hey, what 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 do you got there? And I had all the parts. I just didn't know what I was doing. And they were like, oh, well, I'll, I'll just do that for you. And they made it for me. And I learned so much about electronics that since then I've actually made a few projects and things like that. So that idea of a space where like these uh, creative resources are held in common for people and become a hub for co-creation and learning is what I wanted to bring when, and the inspiration for me was looking around my laboratory workshop and being like, man, I've got three grinders just sitting there. I'm using this one, but there's three just sitting there and the, all the candle making equipment sitting there. Cause I'm sitting here grinding herbs and you know, the, the distillation apparatus is sitting in the cabinet. It, it's collecting dust. And I, my sort of private apothecary is, as comprehensive a magical apothecary as I've encountered. And now that I've been sort of wholesaling more roots and stuff like that as well, I've been just have kilos of herbs and roots losing potency as far as I'm concerned, sitting there degrading very slowly. They're stored properly, but over time, everything degrades. And I'm just thinking like, man, I bet there's people who wish they could use this equipment with these resources to make something awesome. And kind of putting those two ideas together that inspired what we're calling the Holy Mountain Magical Makerspace. That is very so. Like this wouldn't just be like equipment. This would also be like there might be like kind of like a like a refrigerator of of herbs and such that so people could kind of draw of from. How I'm picturing it, and really it, it largely depends on the success of the Kickstarter, right? Um, how I'm picturing it though is long kind of laboratory style tables, like your high school chemistry class. 
and this is how I've seen many maker spaces set up. So you can work on both sides of the table and there's kind of a, an equipment library where you go and you have to check out the equipment to use it. You have to give your ID so you can't steal the expensive equipment and all that stuff. And you do have to be trained on the equipment. Before. You can't just come in and be like, hey, it's $3,000 worth of chemistry glass. Let's see what's going on. You can take a class on it and stuff. Okay. Um, and then we'll have an apothecary. So if you want, I don't know, two grams or two ounces or two pounds of fennel or master root or whatever, you just go over to the apothecary counter and, and, you know, buy that small amount you need. The whole idea is that it's going to be a nonprofit structure. I really believe that keeping the transmission of especially the technical knowledge around this stuff, nonprofit is you have two alternatives. You can either, when you're dealing with something priceless, you can either charge what it's worth, which puts it out of the reach of most people, mm -hmm. or you can make it not for profit, which somehow still deals with the pricelessness of it, right? I, it's it's always weird for me to say, oh, well, here's a, a price for a lesson on alchemy. Like, it's such a deep concept that I can't put a price tag on that. So not-for-profit works, right? Donation-based model, sliding scale model. Um, and the idea is that it's membership-based, right? You have a membership that covers your use of the equipment. And then as you need whatever you need for an individual project, we have that for you too. And then to have, you know, that's the laboratory space. Um, in some systems of, we'll say, esotericism, they distinguish between the laboratory and the oratory, right? The place where you work and the place where you pray. So the Holy Mountain Spiritual Temple has been something I've been building since 2020. And the ritual spaces will probably merit some expansion now. Right now, it's about 108 square feet. It's about enough for oh, a ritual worker and one or two other people in there. Um, so it's not really for group ritual, it's more for individual ritual. Uh, and the altars take up a, quite a bit of the space, but it's a yurt, so it's totally portable. So wherever we go, it will go, it will be erected there. So we'll have the laboratory space, the ritual space, and then the idea of having a space for group seminars, classes, special events, things of that nature, a community space, we'll call it. So is your vision that ideally, because I mean, like, that story of you trying to build a, a kind of brain electricity box machine, which I kind of want to hear about as well, just because I'm, oh, I'm we, curious we can to talk about that. Like, yeah, because yeah, it sounds uh, profoundly dangerous, but also very cool, which those two things, you know, tend to go hand in hand. But like the idea, like, you know, some guy saw you and was like, what's she up to? And that is how learning happened. Do you foresee, like, besides, like, formal classes, like, hoping to generate a kind of space where there's just going to be a lot of people just kind of hanging out, and then yep, someone's be like, what the hell is that? Exactly, right? What is that guy doing? What is that herb? I've heard of that. How does that work? Um, th that's the ethos of the maker space that I like to bring. Um, folks who are in the maker and hacker community know that vibe. And when I've gone to conventions for that community, which is a very left brain community, uh, particularly often uh, hostile to magical thinking community. Um, but that ethos of like, hey, what's, uh, um, there's non-hierarchical teaching and uh, dissemination of knowledge and co-training and co-discovery is so incredible and so in keeping with the spirit that I find just so enthralling about classical magic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very inspired by, they call her Maria Hebraica, Mary the Jewess, 
kind of the first alchemist in Alexandria. And she's the mother of alchemy and the mother of perfumery. They say she created the, I think the Alembic or the Pelican, but one of the main alchemical uh, vessels was her invention. Um, and it was, a, um, you know, it wasn't like a school where you paid a tuition and, and had a syllabus that you worked through. It was a school in the sense that it was an academy or an institution of learning. It was a place where people who wanted to know would go. And there was ex free exchange of information. You know, the great, I think of the great academies and more, more recently, Philosophical Research Society. Uh, Manly P. Hall has been a huge inspiration of mine for oh, 15, 20 years now. And I, without a doubt, what he did with PRS is what has inspired at least the possibility of doing something like this. How similar is this kind of setup, as you envision it, like to how you learned this tradition? Did you were you also kind of coming up through some sort of shared communal type space? So I I have uh, wandered a lot of paths. I have I have a very mercurial nature, being a double Virgo. Um, so I find myself uh, slipping into and out of different things and finding the ability to. Uh, learn pieces in one place that I can, you know, regurgitate or rehash in another place that gets me more pieces. So my my path has been a little meandering. What I hope to do is provide a a, a fertile environment for such meandering paths to unfold. Right? I believe uh, sort of an "if you build it, they will come" type thing. It's a very Eastern way of creating. Right? There's this idea that we can uh, cultivate such that something naturally occurs. It's the mindset that we use in fermenting, right? If you've ever made kombucha or yogurt or brewed alcohol, you don't actually make any alcohol. The yeast make the alcohol. You create an environment in which the yeast will make alcohol. And if we get into the very classical, you know, sort of more ancestral versions of fermenting, you don't even add the yeast, right? You just leave something there in such an environment that the wild yeast will colonize it and out colonize whatever other bugs are in there, out compete them. And you create the environment germane for that. And it, it must come about. It's natural that it comes about in that way. It's almost like a very Taoist way of creating. And that's, I intend to create a space that hopefully will cultivate in that way. Does that sort of get played out in your magical work as well? Because I mean, I've seen you like when I when I kind of like peruse your Instagram page, you know, like I see a lot of physical objects that you are clearly making with a lot of care and intention. But do you find yourself also trying to create magic through like just setting the conditions for some kind of outcome without actually necessarily being the one to like stick your hand into the thing and make it happen? Very much so. Um, I I so I have a, a, a personal interest, a longstanding personal interest in uh, classical Chinese strategy, which really um, draws on that sort of approach to problem solving, especially because of its efficiency. I believe very strongly in efficient magic, hyper-efficient magic, because I don't really like throwing around the word karma because it doesn't mean what, kind of what people use it as. Yeah. But every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? That Just the energetics of it. So... I do not want to catch a big reaction if I can avoid it in general. If I can just configure things ever so slightly so that the natural course of things will make them come about, that's far more ideal than me trying to force against 
the way of things. And when I say the way of things, you know, we can think of that again in an Eastern or Taoist perspective, but even just like astrologically, like that's the logic for doing work astrologically or or bringing astrological correspondence into work because I don't have to fight against the mm. course, right? If 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 I have, you know, client work and I'm, I'm, I'm doing targeted work on someone, I'm going to look at their chart and I'm going to look at their transits and I'm going to go with the work that I will do will be more informed by their by their transits than anything else. Ideally, I will only have to nudge, right? I don't, for a variety of reasons, like I've developed all this gray hair in the past five years, and most of it in the first two of those from pushing too much juice in my work. And that's, you know, I, I heard people older than me say it. I was skeptical. Well, here I am to tell you it's very true, right? The work ages you. It's just pushing so much vital energy mm. that it, it it doesn't degrade the system but uh, it's not meant to course that much in that short a time and things have to catch up with each other and so yeah giving a more and it, this is also specific to how i work right like it's a very a, a lot a great investment of my personal energy and as you said very virgo intangible work you know uh there's a lot of physical interaction and, and physical energetic interaction my moon's in pisces too so that that oh yeah so, so there you go so it's very part it gets very personal it's hard for me to like stand above my work so to yeah speak. how um, do you because i mean it seems like you like your your instagram seems like it, it blew up over the course of a fairly short i mean like five years doesn't i mean i guess it's forever but it's also like an incredibly short span of time yeah how is it now that you are suddenly the fixture of like all this attention and I'm sure there are all these people sort of like, like I have problems, help me with the problems. How do you like, have you found that you needed to build stronger boundaries just as like someone who cares? So the Pisces moon has gotten me into more trouble than anything else. Well, I also have a Leo Mars, which used to be a big issue on the social media, but mm. some, uh, Saturn has come to oppose that and uh, caused me to just leave it be a lot more <laughs> um but that said uh yeah you know that's what led to so you know i didn't start out doing a nonprofit. my instagram started out as a completely anonymous with no text on anything photo journal of my own work for myself it was just the platform that was easy i had a phone in my pocket i wanted to take a picture of this work i knew what the result was this was my you know in classical magic Typically, we didn't call it workings. They called it experiments. And this right. was my log of, exper of a particular chain of experiments that I was like seriously undertaking with focus and the intention to record it. And for the first couple months, that's all it was. Then I started adding captions. I didn't show my face on there. I think for, I think on the one-year anniversary of my account is the first time I posted a selfie or two-year anniversary, something like that. Yeah, um, It was really just about my work nothing was for sale in the initial inception and then people wanted to hire me for work and I started doing client work and then I reached a point where this was the Pisces moon many people wanted work and I didn't have the time in the day the energy or the ability to say like oh okay well you have 20 bucks let me do that for you like I've got a family to feed I can't I can't unfortunately work on everyone's scale. So that led me to saying, what can I create? And not just a, a trinket or a bauble that I can, and, you know, pass through my hands, 
but what can I figure out a way to put spiritual work in, in a way that makes it more economical? This is the Virgoan analysis, like hard at work, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both the materialist stuff. Um, so, okay, so like, that's interesting. So I was going to ask you, you know, have you run into problems? Kind of the opposite question, actually, because I think a lot of people, especially when they're doing, I feel like I hear this like hoodoo workers in particular, because so much of what they, they do is like service oriented mm-hmm. in some way. There's just like this ceiling that they hit of like, I would like to have, you know, the, the 300K a year lifestyle, but you just can't make that number of things and make them well when you're doing it all yourself. But it seems more like you actually went to the making of things as a way of just trying to accommodate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it, it became where it started was someone in prison. I don't know how they got on Instagram in prison messaged me asking for what, what could I get to them? And I was like, well, if I send you a mojo bag, that's definitely not going to get to you. If I, whatever I send you full of herbs and stuff, you know, they look through all their mail. And if it's anything they consider might be contraband, it'll at least get destroyed. Certainly any spiritual, like a mojo bag, if anyone looks at it or touches it, it's dead. So can't send that into a prison. And that's when I was like, ah, and, and then I was thinking about like, well, personal items, the guards have full consent to take. And that's when I got into the idea of prayer cards. That's a religious item that they can't take from you. And mm. that's when I started doing the dressed prayer cards. That's how I got to doing dressed prayer cards and designing my own prayer cards. And then you know, to me, the card is, re- it's not about the card. The card is the vehicle for what I dress it with. It's the cologne that I put on it that has all the juju. The cards just, the, at least initially, was just the way to get, that into prison because they definitely would not let me send a bottle a random homemade bottle of strange alcohol substance into prison right right that's um, really cool and that led to then the metals which was another way to be like oh these can kind of go anywhere these can kind of uh pass scrutiny uh and and that's i think where to go to your original question how how that instagram account perpetuated itself and how the interact how i balanced the desire to help with the interactions by year two or three of that um that's when i was like things were things were definitely humming along and the you know um i was absolutely racked with guilt um because i was helping a lot of people but i wasn't interacting with them as deeply as i thought and i felt like I was in some cases doing a disservice by provoking. My dad always taught me that a little information is a dangerous thing. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if someone just gives you a, a gun and says, here, you pull the trigger to shoot it. That's really dangerous. There's a lot more you need to know about firearms to have that and have it be a useful and responsible tool. And, and I kind of felt like it was getting there and that's what really drove me to start the nonprofit and shift to Holy Mountain. Um, I felt like that allowed me. And for the first year of that, uh, I didn't sell anything. I actually, that was my effort to say, hey guys, how about instead of selling, we gather virtually every day to meditate and pray. And then you don't need to buy anything from me. You can, you can, you know, do, do your own thing. You know, I'll have classes and stuff like that. And it was, it was, uh, it was frustrating. It was frustrating. There was a lot of support for it, but I think, Part of me needed to accept that we live in a material world and 
we live in a culture that's like, well, I don't, you want me to spend 30 minutes a day for six weeks meditating to solve the problem by myself, but I'm actually only talking to you because I want to spend $35 in two minutes and have that, have that solution at my door in two days. That's the reality of the world that we live in. Um, and I, I came to accept that um, the way spirit gave it to me was you have to meet people where they're at with what's for them. Uh, and mm. so the maker space then becomes kind of where heaven and earth meet in that regard. Um, because it's, it can, it is all those things. It facilitates all those things. It's the place where I'll create my stuff for sure. So that'll be more available for everyone. It'll allow other people to co-create with me. It'll allow people to see how I create my stuff. And more importantly, for those people who do feel like called and empowered in the way where they are ready to just do it directly, it's, it not only, um, educates and facilitates but completely you know provides all the resources for it. where i feel like this is a fundamental question that i've somehow let us get really far afield from where's it gonna be right so it's gonna be here in colorado um really it it depends on uh it depends on how the kickstarter goes right it if uh if it goes you know passably okay it may just be a really big storage unit somewhere that I'll deck out. Uh, if it goes really well, then it'll be a storefront or something like that. And if it goes, you know, if, if everyone decides that everything that we're offering is special enough that they want to get in on it, then it will buy a building somewhere, buy a space. It'll probably be like a house somewhere. Um, and that would be the real goal to be able to have people come stay for retreats and things like that uh, and really get, you know, it's one thing to do the work for a few hours. It's a whole different thing to live it, eat it, and breathe it for three days. That mm. goes with you forever. It's interesting because I'm so, because like, you know, you've got the the, the popular Instagram. Um, I was reading uh, not too long ago about how you sort of were saying you were feeling very proud whenever you wrote this, um, that you had created a system where people could watch candles that you'd prepared for them burn via like a live stream, right? Like people could have that sort of virtually and as you make this move toward, you know, actual, you know, direct physical space, like, are you going to try to like transition just away from the virtual, away from the internet and live solely in the magic that is being able to like throw something at somebody and actually hit them? You know, I, uh, I dream of it. I don't think it's realistic. Mm. Um, I, and for, for a variety, because you have to meet people where they're at with what's for them. And realistically, the amount of people who can and look, I don't I don't think that I am uh, particularly gifted or or special. I think I've spent a lot of times exploring a lot of things and learned a lot of things by making a lot of mistakes. And I can save some people some time. That's that's the long and short of it. I think of myself as a maybe a librarian of this stuff. Right. I'm, I didn't write it. I just have a kind of working knowledge to guide you where to go to find it. And, and in that context, if I can save people time, I can save more time, more time for more people virtually than I'll ever be able to in person. That said, if you ever sat down with a library to do a research, a librarian on a research project, they are a wealth of resources in person that, that they far exceed in their virtual capacity. Yeah. And, I hope to be able to provide that for people and really to, again, I would love it for long after my, I'm gone for my daughters to be unlocking the door to this place for other people to share and be teaching. And, you know, the idea is to create an institution 
because I believe in, I believe that the real world analog meat space, as we were calling it before, uh, before we got on the air, there is a, a wholeness to it that is impossible in the virtual. That kind of goes without saying. I think part of what's lost is that common sense of humanity. And mm. one thing I've been reflecting on, it's actually really interesting to be doing an interview right now. Um, I, I was uh, reminded of a practice where one avoids, I think Crowley did it. Uh, one of my friends told me, I, I think it might be a Scientology thing too, or I think Burroughs did it for a while, but where one avoids saying I or me. You just don't speak in the first term. So instead of saying like, I read this interesting article about John D, you might say there is this really interesting article about John D or even better. So-and-so wrote this really interesting article about John D. You just take yourself out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've been trying to do that on social media and it, it does not work well. The, the it, it is not suited to the medium. You know, I track my, again, very Virgo and I am a, a fiend for the analytics and I track my analytics very closely. And I can tell you, Posts that do not include the word I or me, maybe it's the algorithm too. They don't, they aren't as popular on social media. And that said, when we get into group space, when we get into, again, that makerspace environment, it's all about the ideas. It's not about the individual anymore. And I think it's just so much more fruitful. And the, the synergy that happens when it's three people are in a room is completely different from three people in a chat room or three people in a thread or anything like that. Do you find yourself in any kind of, I don't know, antagonistic relationship with the Instagram, with the algorithms, with the things like that? Because, I mean, it sounds like you're you're approaching it from kind of a, an analytical kind of, you know, empirical, like, if I do this, it does that. If I do this, it does that kind of way. Yeah. Are you doing like, I don't know, Instagram magics? Are you Are you trying to summon the algorithm well, and to say in, like, Hey, in, stop that. In the sense of, you know, how I do magics where I try to just sort of like find the flow of things and see where I can adjust and nudge very much. So, right. That there's the, the observation, I, I feel like I'm performing divination on analytics, right. And, and acting according to that divination basically all the time. Yeah. Basically all the time, but certainly since, since you know for the past four years at minimum that's that's definitely true i also you know right around when i was starting my instagram account i was doing a lot of i, I hesitate to use the phrase but borderline chaos magic um incorporating um high tech stuff in traditional working so you know one might make a some kind of hand whether it's a gator paw or something else holding a coin. And that's kind of a, a fairly common hand that people make for, for prosperity. I did it with a Bitcoin wallet, like a hardware wallet. And mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of stuff with cryptocurrency, divination, cryptocurrency, uh, candle magic combinations. Weird. I was mining a lot of cryptocurrency at the time. And some very improbable things happened without getting, you know, this isn't a cryptocurrency uh, podcast, but without getting too deep, the way cryptocurrency mining works is you get a very small percentage of the value of every transaction that you help process. One night did a working one in uh, however many millions of chance. I happen to be one of the things processing a very, 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 very large transaction. So instead of waking up to the usual, like, Oh, Hey, my computer made 14 bucks while I was asleep. 
I woke up to like, hey, my computer made seventeen hundred dollars while I was asleep. Um, just by luck of the draw, you know, I happened to get the commission on that one. Yeah. That so is, yeah. I played around with a lot of that stuff. That's interesting. Okay, so actually, I want to talk to you about prosperity for a second because there, you know, I was, you know, again. I, I feel like this is becoming a theme of the show. I was stalking your Instagram as research for this interview, as one does. And um, I saw you did like a post about a prosperity working for like a business. Um, I forget which Psalm you were talking about, but like just a wall of text, right? Like just giving giving the whole shop away. Right. I'm like, here's how you do this. None of that sort of like, here's a little bit of it. And if you want the rest of it, you know, pay $9.95 for this, you know, three week class, whatever. And I am curious though, when you do say like a prosperity working or any other kind of working that is incorporating, say some mixture of like Psalms and herbs, what are you doing to wake these things up? What is it that makes a mad, a Psalm, a magical Psalm, an herb, a magical herb? Is it just a simple question of intent or are you doing a lot to be sort of like, Hey, remember what you are. You, yes. And yes. Um, Yes, in that, um, the word in Hebrew is kavana, intention, right? It, it, and this is like real classical, whether you want, actually even just Judaic religion, but Kabbalah too. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, if you do it without kavana, without intention, nothing's going to happen. And to the flip side, if you are a Baal kavana, if you're a master of intention, it doesn't matter the the physical trappings of what you do are irrelevant you could uh take a you know put pour a drop of water in another cup of water and and create the result you want most of us are somewhere between those two extremes and so to me that's where the physical comes in it helps me focus my intention and um i feel like shepherd my intention when i'm working with uh the psalms Part of it is just my connection from my personal devotional practice with the Psalms, right? Everything, just anything you have read more than once, I think, in life, even completely secular material, lodges in some way in your mind, and there's a chain of association that comes with that. With the Psalms, there is the traditional association, and I generally work with those. And then, you know, I've said this particular Psalm for a business prosperity working a hundred times or whatever. So it's automatically going to bring me into that chain of association. Mm. Um, as far as working with the Psalms, yeah, of course. I mean, intention, breaking your heart, pouring your broken heart through the Psalms is is the key, right? Uh, the and that's something that can't be explained in text. It, it's an emotive, um, it's an emotive faculty. It's humbling yourself to the words. It's it's subjugating yourself to the meaning of the text that makes it potentiated in my opinion, um, how that then, so that's how, that's how I would say, wake up a song, yeah. right? Um, as far as an herbal root, uh, any natural creation, an animal, how I personally practice it. And I really, really, really find it important to give the disclaimer. This is my personal practice based on, you know, my religious and spiritual background, my personal experiences. It's definitely not the way to do it, but how I do it. The beginning, we have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, give the specific license for mankind to, in some way or another, dominate 
plants and animals. It's different for each. Man is given all the animal, uh, all the plants as food, um, all the seed bearing plants of the earth. So that's kind of like, well, you're you're mine. Like you, you, I'm the boss here. Let me remind you, according to the contract, that I'm the boss here. Mm. What we're doing um, in Genesis two, actually even better uh, in Noah when Noah gets out of the ark. Uh, God places the fear and the dread of mankind in the animals um, and that they're given to eat them. So with those two lines, I approach the work and sort of establish the context that we're doing seriously. You are what you are. I think of it like a coach. Even better, let's think of like a, a high school sports coach. I didn't, I didn't do sports in high school. I was a computer club kid. But this person is not primarily an athlete, right? It's among what they do, but they're a son, they're a brother, they're maybe a, a, they're probably interested in dating, they're probably interested in having fun with their friends. The coach has to come to them and evoke that part that's the athlete and suppress all that other stuff and say, for now, for the next 90 minutes, you're a whatever player. Mm. And so that's how I feel like I'm interacting with the herb. And then calling it by name and calling forth the particular virtue, because very few herbs are sort of that or roots or whatever, are that sort of flat, you know, do one thing, right? When I think of something like rosemary, which I use a lot, I mean, it does probably nine or 10 or 11, just like a person. What person just does one thing? What animal even just does one thing? You have your areas of specialty. You have the things you're more suited to. I'm not a particularly handy dude, right? Like I wouldn't be your first choice if you were like, hey, I need to build a cabinet. Let me call Moses. But if we were in a pinch and we needed to slap something together, I could hammer some nails into some wood as just about anyone could, right? right. It wouldn't be perfect. It wouldn't be square. There'd be a lot of things wrong with it, but it could happen. But I'd rather have a carpenter because he'd just go boom, boom, and it'll be done. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Again, it's that idea of efficiency. I don't want to, I don't want to, I feel like when we do magic, we stretch reality. It's like a rubber band. And the further we stretch that thing, the more it's going to snap back. So you're really looking for those, like, you know, those sort of natural ways in which the river is already going sort of where you need it to go. You just need to, like, dig a tiny little ditch to get it going slightly to the right or something. Or like maybe I need to dam it for a little while to build it up oh. so that I can release it with more force. But exactly that. I want to work with what's happening. I'm not going to try to turn the river around. That's I don't have time for that. <laughs> I got two little kids. I can't put that in. Right. That's actually really, because I'm so used to hearing people say like, I have to break through the blockages. I have to stop the things. But magically blocking a thing so it builds up some, you know, uh, what, I, what is the word for this? It builds up energy. There's like, a uh, anyway. Well, potential like, energy, but in, in Chinese, the word is sure. Okay. It's, it's sure is what's in a drone bow. Uh -huh. or a boulder at a great height that's it's this idea of uh something that's been withheld and in the withholding it is potentiated and that it becomes inevitable at a point when it's finally released it's it's passage is inevitable so like what's a like this is such an interesting metaphor what's like a concrete sort of like 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 what's the kind of working that we're talking about when we say any working so here's what here i'll give you an example of how it plays out in some root work right yeah it'd be great and this is like you'll find this especially in in you know older older hoodoo workers, especially like South Carolina style, you know, coastal work. I've seen this a lot, even in some of the books and stuff. 
you'll put an inhibitor in there. You'll put something to slow it down. If I got, let's let's say we're doing a love working. Okay. okay? And I'm using rose and catnip and Damiana and let's say, let's, let's say that, right? I'm going to put something in there to slow it down or change the tone of it because otherwise, and this is actually, if you've looked through my Instagram, there's a love potion on there. Very, very good love oil. But if you don't put something in there to slow it down, it will absolutely lead to obsession. It will be not good, right? So you're going to put something in there that's contrary, whether maybe it's a little salt or black pepper, or so, you don't want not full on counter to the intention of, but just something that breaks step a little bit. I think about, I, I don't know much about physics, but I was in high school once. And I, the teacher gave a very clear visual of how when soldiers march across the bridge, they're ordered to break step. You know, soldiers march in time, but they are ordered to stagger their step when they go across the bridge. So it doesn't create a standing wave and make the bridge break because it it reinforces itself too much. And so they have to put some noise into it mm -hmm. so that it's not too overpoweringly reinforced. Um and that, that is basically the idea. So if you're doing a pro, I mean, in prosperity working, the, the perfect way to phrase it is like, you never just do a hot money work. What I mean is if you're just doing cinnamon and clove and you're all spice, which is again, sort of like a, I'm not, I'm not saying anything revolutionary and using those things for money. Yeah. You're going to get money and you're going to burn right through it. You need to put something in to slow it down, which is where your alfalfa, your Irish moss, even this is where something to retain it might come in. This is where people are sometimes surprised. Why don't we put devil shoestring in, in money work? Well, first of all, money belongs to the devil. But second of all, I want to, I want to tie that up. I don't want, I don't want that money to flow out, right? Just having cash flow is one thing, but usually that is just constant stress, right? Yeah. I know a lot of people who manage to pay rent every month, but worry about it every month. That's what doing only hot money work gets you. If you cool it down, slow it down a little, it doesn't flow out as fast. It's not just that constant flow. That's how I would say for money work. For love work, it can turn it, it is the difference between obsession. You can overplay it too. If you play it too hard, then you know you come up short. But you can always add more to give it more power. I've I've seen it in real old work where people do blessing work or something like that, and he'd sprinkle in a little pinch of asafoetida, which is usually for cursing just to pump the brakes on it and again when whenever you're doing this you're just it's just a pinch it's just to add a little noise there's a term in in, in virtual reality in, in computer graphic design called the uncanny valley right? right if you make something too perfect our brains don't like it because it seems it's weird it's creepy to us right you have to put a little noise that you have to put the degauss uh function in there you have to do all these different ways of adding noise that make it seem more real because reality is not perfectly smooth like that and so it's it's kind of that idea where we're just adding a little noise a little texture we're not changing the energy completely it's just a little complexity you know if you make chocolate you should add a little salt right Think of it like that too okay so you wouldn't do like if someone was like um i have a job interview on monday and i really want to get this job you wouldn't do something like say like i'm going to do anti-prosperity work on you tuesday through saturday so that by the time sunday hits if i like take that off of you you're just gonna spring into that job interview no. like a comet 
But what I would have you do to, I wouldn't necessarily hold it back like that. That would be more where I'm like actually damming something up and letting it go. That would be to break through a situation. If okay. I run up against something and I don't, and whatever it is, is not powerful enough to break through, then I don't need to hold it back. And how I'll hold it back usually is I'll do that work maybe and put it in a jar and not work that jar and then release it and, and, or work that jar and build it up, 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 and then release the work and send it out. Mm. Right. But how I would do it in that, say that job interview thing would be, if I'm going to have you do a prosperity bath, let's say before your job interview or even better job interview is going to be a crown of success situation for me. You don't actually have to be good. The job doesn't, it's not really about money. It's about making people think that, that you're a wonderful fit. Right. right. So that's to me always a crown of success work. But if I'm going to do a crown of success, I'm not going to say, start doing this and, and be doing crown of success work on yourself for three weeks before your job interview. I will probably say seven days for the week up to your job interview, maybe even just three days before the, the job interview. I want you to do that. But actually before then, I want to clean you off. I want to I want to make you as neutral as possible. I think of the idea of like if you're if you're, you know, when you're listening to loud music in the car and you get out of the car and you get back in and you turn it on, you're like, oh my God, it's really loud. You didn't realize how loud it was. There, there is there is this um ability to be habituated to something and the thing about when you're it's not bad it actually sets you in that mode or that tone but any additional input that you give is going to work against that habituation so my goal is to get you as new again back on this efficiency obsession i want to get you as neutral as possible so i just need to give you a little bit of the medicine to to cause a big reaction mm. um, and this just goes back to the efficient magic concept. And like my efficient magic concept is ex why I don't practice Goetia. Not that I don't have, I, I'm probably a slightly more qualified than the average practitioner, just in that, I, you know, I'm conversing in Hebrew and all the biblical stuff and all that. But I'm not really doing anything important enough to bother a demon about. I'm trying to get a job, pass a test, pay a bill. I'm not trying to build a city that lasts 9,000 years. If someone hits me up for that job, maybe, you know, maybe I'll look up, but for now, it's like, these aren't really, there's nothing that I need to handle that's not in the domain of human capacity. And therefore, usually as far as I'm going to go is the graveyard, because somebody there can handle it. Even before then, usually the roots and the herbs can handle it. Very, I mean, I've never had anyone come to me with a request that's like, yes, I, Sorry, let me rephrase that. I have had people come to me with grandiose requests and I, you know, refuse them out of hand because they're, they don't seem to me to be deeply considered and uh, full of wisdom. Do you do a lot of like outsourcing is the wrong word, but I don't know, bringing in a pinch hitter for, from the graveyard. Yeah. When um, you know, that, that less so, I mean, just I'm not doing as much client work now. Um, I'm really fo more focused on the nonprofit and stuff like that. But in terms of like when I was running client work, yeah. oh yeah, you know, my approach to conjuring it was basically management. One of the the uh, the things that I really like to share with people in the fundamentals of conjuration courses I give is like negotiation 101. I take steal that right from a business textbook. Um, because conjuring spirits, managing spirits, it's all the same thing. You're trying to set up efficient systems. You're trying to match skill sets, match 
the nature, you know, it has to be, they have to fit in with the culture of the environment, everything you're trying to do in a workplace. Um, because that's how you get more stuff done, right? Again, it comes back to the limitations of, I only have so many hours in a day. I only have two hands and two feet. So, and, and one mind, right. And if I, and if everything is based on intention, how many different intentions can I possibly hold simultaneously? Really only one, if I really want to push it. Yeah. So I have to pass that. I have to outsource that intention. Um, and that's where necromancy comes in. And and that's a very, you know, who to approach to it. So in terms of like the other sort of folks that you're kind of incorporating into this larger sort of ecosystem of folks you're working with, you bring up the Archangel Michael a lot. And how, how did that start for you? Because he seems like something sort of like far, like sort of unique in the spiritual cosmos a little bit. So it started for me as a kid. Um, because he's he's Saar Yisrael, he's the Prince of Israel. So growing up Jewish, if when I would start asking the rabbis about magic and stuff like that, they would refer me to Talmud tractates and stuff. And, you know, it's it, as it gets later, Metatron works in a lot more. But in the beginning, it's all about Michael. You know, that's, he's he's the focus. And so that that was really early for me that that in terms of understanding Michael as a vehicle for supernatural possibility. We'll just put it in that in that sense. And one that was congruent with, we'll call it like mainstream faith, right? Because it was really interesting then to, to, as I grew up and learned more about different faiths, to see like, oh, that's interesting. The Catholics do the same thing with them. And, and you know, Muslims to some extent too, though more Gabriel. Um, but the invocation of the angels, you know, there's a protection prayer that we're taught as kids that invokes the angels. And, and that kind of thing was really early in life for me. And that was just a, a, a figure that I associated with that and ended up being, as I, as I moved into my own spiritual growth, like the, the figure I fixed it. So one thing I should say is that obviously growing up Jewish, I didn't grow up with saints. He wasn't Saint Michael to me. Oh, that, that yeah, was, yeah. that became a later, you know, in order to bridge some gaps, meeting people where they're at with what's for them. St. Michael, but to have a figure other than God, kind of a, a middle manager in some way was really, really appealing because the, the, you know, just theologically approaching God for small stuff doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. Uh, just as, you know, if your paycheck's off, you don't go to the CEO. There's someone in the accounting department and probably isn't the CFO who you're going to talk to, to get that fixed. And there's a big universe to keep in order. And my little request or qualm is relatively insignificant, again, in my theology. So uh, having this sort of middle manager who is just like a bro and is kind of like very amicable and receptive is just very, very, very appealing concept to me. As the course of my life came about and I courted risk as a young man increasingly and did dangerous things and and survived dangerous things it was it was it was michael who i called you know thought about being in my corner and i mean even the explosion that i survived last month like that 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 was the archangel michael a thousand percent it was a miraculous that i survived it at all the fact that i'm here literally 100 percent intact is hard to believe yeah, yeah, like people can't see you because they're not on Zoom right now, but like you look 
fine. Like someone yep. would not know just looking at you now that you were in a giant explosion. Yeah, I, I I look and and feel fine. Like there's physically, there's nothing wrong. The 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 kitchen is still exploded. They actually just cleaned it. I I didn't know a spell for insurance companies. I knew a spell. I knew you know spells for healing, charms for healing. To get the insurance adjuster to call you back, that one I can't find that grimoire. Uh, so it's taking a little longer. But yeah, I mean, uh, I had I had. Um, an engineer review the still to make sure that I just didn't make a, a nearly fatal mistake. And if I did to prevent that from happening ever again. Right. So I had an engineer review the apparatus and review what happened. And he said, no, this is a freak accident. You know, this is, this can happen. This is a 3000 year old extraction technology. And it's the reason they don't use this in industrial applications today, because one in however many chances it can happen. We talked about it. We, I'm pleased to say that wherever we open the makerspace, the still we have there will be the safest traditional copper Olympic still in the world um, with a pressure gauge, uh, fail pressure fail safe, and built-in uh, fine mesh copper filtration. And it, it's something that I hope we can steer everyone who uses copper Olympics to, to outfitting with. It's a very inexpensive modification, and it, it really increases the safety of the equipment, you know, so much. In any case... He reviewed the still and said, well, what happened there was the copper actually ruptured. And that had to be, he guessed, 100 PSI. I'm going to say that he maybe overshot it. Not that I know anything, but I like to benefit of the doubt things. And so say it was 50 PSI. A hand grenade explodes at 30 PSI, 35 in some instances. There are some significant physical differences between how a hand grenade is made and how a copper still is made. And the hand grenade explodes symmetrically and the copper still actually gave out this is where that angelic assistance comes in. Gave out away from me first, so it was weak, and so the blast mostly went away from me. Mm. Nonetheless, though, I felt like I got punched in the face with steam. Like, it was hard. I felt force. I thought I got hit with the copper, and I, I didn't. And, yeah, I had I was burned. I've, I've done a lot of foolish things and experienced a lot of pain in my life, and never anything like that. And thank God, and thank the archangel, that I remembered the charm that I had just researched for burns and it worked. And I, you know, hopped in the shower and put on the ice cold water and just kept saying that charm till the paramedics showed up. And by the time I left the hospital, I don't know, six hours later, I didn't, I, I would kind of just felt like a rough sunburn. So clearly having this relationship with the archangel has been beneficial, let's say. How did you cultivate that did like because like i'm also like i love the idea that you like as a kid you went to the rabbis and were like i i'd like to learn magic and instead of being like no don't do that that's bad they were just like oh yeah yeah, yeah. here's where you, this is where you look for, well for it that. seemed like i want to say that as a, it felt like a cop-out it felt like a cop-out to me because i wanted to learn magic and they were showing me more of what i would just say this prayer i've been praying the whole time i want to do magic you know uh, okay <laughs> it felt like a cop-out yeah. but one of the rabbis did eventually say and this was, I still use this one. Okay, there's this book called The Golden Bow by Fraser. Read it and you'll know everything you need to know about magic. And I did. And it's still, if anyone wants to like be a legitimate student of mine, I that's the first assignment you get. Come when you're done reading The Golden Bow, we'll sit down and talk about it. That's your application to study. So far, no one's taken me up on it. Uh, it's kind of a long book. But it's, a big, it's a big book. Big book. It's a big book. And then, you know. I don't let them get to like doctrine and ritual of high magic till book three. They have to go through Golden Bow and then um, Manly P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages. 
And once you get through those, we can talk about doctrine and ritual of high magic. But so far, no one has sat down and read Golden Bow and wanted to talk about it with me. That said, so the rabbis gave me that much, but for the most part, it was like, well, here's there's also a very, very big concern in sort of mainstream Judaism with what's considered idolatry, uh, which is basically encompasses everything I do, right? Like I, I am, there's a misunderstanding that Judaism prohibits magic. It prohibits machshefa, witchcraft, which is a specific term of art in the context of ancient Judaic practice. There are many terms of art describing the, it's like, okay, someone's an engineer. Whether they're a structural engineer, a civil engineer, an electric engineer, a sound engineer, yeah, they know physics, no matter what. They're all dealing in the domain of physics. But the specialties are very different in, in, in even what they do with it, right? So similarly, there are these different terms of art used in the biblical context for different types of divination. People say divination is prohibited. Certain, three specific types of divination are prohibited, and others are, are like very frankly explained in the scripture. Mm. Um, so similarly, there's there's the misimpression that magic as a whole is prohibited. It's, it's specific types, we'll say, or practices of magic. Catching a spirit in a doll and, you know, hexing, a hexing doll is probably prohibited probably almost certainly prohibited that that term which is built off the root word for pillows and has to do with sewing and catching catching spirits and sewing them into pillows is roughly what they evoke that's a definite you know that's clearly a a biblical right but that doesn't mean that all interaction with the supernatural is is a biblical and, and to the contrary like i don't know if you ever read the bible that's pretty much all it's, all it's about right. uh, so the rabbi is kind of guiding in that way with that intention. They're mostly hedging against what would be considered idol worship. And that's where uh, most of the prohibitions and strictures and, and what's considered idol worship, actually a very interesting subset of Jew Jewish legalism, because they actually break down in great detail what the various accoutrement on idols or statues or whatever you want to call it, effigies, actually symbolize and mean at least to the medieval mind when this stuff was written so a sphere indicate a sphere in the hand indicates having the whole world in their hand a sword indicates power a ring indicates dominion and you know these are these are symbols that we see very frequently in you know iconography of all sorts uh rather detached from explicit meanings and in the particular tractates on idol worship they, they flesh all this out with great detail so in that way rabbinism is an interesting um textbook to study this stuff through because they have in a very thorough system over centuries and centuries and centuries cataloged a lot of stuff and then said you can't do it i mean you know you can't tell someone not to do something if you don't tell them what it is which is the classic reginald scott problem but like you you start developing this relationship with the archangel michael like what's what's the opening sort of gambit like how do you how do you get mikey to like you oh you just got to be a good person oh it's that well, easy that is it is it is contrary to the aims of much contemporary magic in that you know I, I say with any spirit you just have to acclimate yourself to them as long as you stand for what they stand for as long as you embody the principles that they bring forth they're gonna like you my daily prayer to michael includes the phrase i ask that you guide and guard and make more appropriate to your purpose the meditations of my heart and the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth and the works of my hands and the travels of my feet right so it's like i'm uh, consider me a subcontractor. I'm on board for your for your deal. 
and this is also why I don't keep like a really, really, really extensive spiritual court, which some spiritualists do. Like I said, I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I can only really commit to so much. To me, my approach to conjuring with spirits, saints, whatever you want, at any at any um, sphere of creation is fundamentally based on how I already know I interact with souls. Right? I, I interact with human souls. I interact with animal souls. Uh, having young kids is really instructive because you interact with a pre-rational soul, mm-hmm. right? When you have like a baby. Nonetheless, you can communicate very, very clearly. And it's about bringing the vibe that they appreciate and you know coming through commit and come through build trust uh, that's how we interact with any soul whether it's a dog a person or 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 a soul that doesn't have a body and so with michael i i he is extremely understanding kind of his his role in office is to just be you know that that benevolent big brother type character who's always there to get your back and pick you up and give you a ride and whatever he does not hold a grudge I've never known anyone to like run afoul of the Archangel Michael and and suffer consequences for it. He may not come through for you as much, right? If you're if you're praying and and you know talking about the glory of heaven and all this other stuff to ask him for something, and then you decide to go like I don't know, sacrifice a goat to Satan. He might not come through for you as much, but it's all in context, right? Like his he's never gonna he's never gonna. Well, I mean. With with most exceptions, he's never going to work directly against you just based on you not devoting yourself hard enough, right? You could think of Michael, well, he is the general of heaven's armies. And in some capacity, you can think of him in, in sort of an executive or law enforcement capacity. So I don't know if you've ever been friends with cops. Usually they're actually pretty easygoing and helpful people. There's some things you can do to cross the line with them that will cause them to interact with you in a very, very, very different way when you put yourself in an adversarial position and that can happen. But I don't think anyone who's, who's turning to Michael is really doing that. You know Um, what I think is very interesting about uh, Archangel Michael is that across even different spiritual traditions, even when we look into some African diasporic traditions, he, he's not syncretized in in some systems. He is, let me say in some systems, he is syncretized to other um, deities and entities and things like that. But in some, he's still just San Miguel, right? He's, 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 he manages to make it into a court of spirits that are not explicitly Abrahamic. Mm. And that's how much latitude he has. If we want to like get into like technical esoterica. Sure. Sure. So he has dominion over the solar sphere which is kind of like an all-access pass, certainly as far as we're concerned, right? right? right. Most of the spirits that we're working with in terms of, you know, the dead or whatever, that's all in the sublunary sphere. That's here on Earth, elementals, sublunary, you know, even when we get into thought forms and egregores and things like that, those are all of the sublunary sphere, right? They, they, don't, they don't radiate down. They are, they are sort of built down here. Higher levels, we get higher, certainly, then we'll work with that. You know, if we do any astrological magic, we're obviously working with higher and higher and higher spheres. But, um, you know, Michael has dominion of the entire solar sphere. And in that, it's sort of like an all-access pass. I, He has had so many roles over the centuries that it gives a lot of different paths to working with him, right? Yes, he protects soldiers and he protects cops and things like that. And that's part of where my work with him over the past few years has been 
through some of my collaborators, Ed's manifesto and, and some of the guys more in tune with that world has been to really provide that sort of spiritual outreach to those realms where spiritual support, I think, is both good inspiration and very necessary, right? Like if more cops had Archangel Michaels instead of Punisher skulls, maybe a better world out there, right? Like maybe a little kinder and gentler world. Um, so that's in that capacity. But he also classically is the shepherd of the dead. He is the tutor of prophets. Uh, he is was supposed uh, to have been what appeared in the burning bush to Moses, supposed to have performed the miracles with Moses at the Red Sea. He's, his capacities are very broad, right? Like everything in the, within the solar sphere. And so whether one is working on divination or uh, psychopompy, necromancy, whatever one's working with, there's a way to get in with Michael. But I think that to go to answer your question, right? Like how do you get him to like you? Keep a solar vibe. That, that's really what it is. It's that he he is sympathetic to that solar energy. Sunday's his day, obviously. And so when we think of, you know, we can we can think of astrological theory and all that is solar kind of associates with Michael. My relationship with him deepened in the course of my spiritual work relatively early on in that you know, first year and a half of, of taking client work. I guess I got a reputation as someone who would take cases that other people didn't want to take. I feel like that's a good place to 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 kind of put the little flag down and say we've done it. If people want to learn more about you and especially about the Kickstarter, where do they go? What do they do? I mean, I'll put links in the show notes, but is there anywhere else? The the prime hub I have in the virtual space is is on Instagram at Hoodoo Moses. Currently, the link in my bio is only the Kickstarter, but usually it's Linktree. So I'll I'll give you guys that link. It's linktr.ee Linktree slash Hoodoo Moses. And the Kickstarter link is right on there. And right now the Kickstarter is not live. It's currently scheduled to launch October 1st, so about two weeks. Okay. And we're in the pre-launch phase right now. Um, and the it would be incredibly beneficial to everything I'm trying to do. If folks who are listening and interested, go and navigate through those links and just click the notify me on launch button on the Kickstarter page. It raises us up in the Kickstarter algorithm and makes everything flow more smoothly. And I guess, let me drop some plugs for what's coming in the Kickstarter, kind of how we're doing this, if you don't mind. No, oh, please. The whole idea around the Kickstarter and um, trying to maybe counter-program consumerism, right? I, I've, I've accepted that people want things they can hold in their hands, but they don't have to be mass-produced and relatively meaningless. And so I'm trying to offer everything that I want to offer has a greater story is a greater experience. Um, so whether it's some of the ritual items that I have, for example, I have the exorcism knife that I use. I've convinced the, or begged, I should say, the person who made mine to make five more. Um, and that was something we worked. He's a knife maker. I did all the spiritual work. He did all the knife making work. And together we produced mine, which has been a trusty ally for four plus years now. So we're gonna make a handful more of those. 
the Saturn altar that I kept through my Sadisati period, which I'm still in and 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 beyond, has a hand-carved lead scythe with wood from the hawthorn tree where we may offer to go to Saturn. I've convinced the maker who made that to make a few more. A lot of these like really special ritual items that you gee, you're not gonna be able to buy the store, you're not gonna be able to buy on the internet. They're they're not one of a kind because I have one and there are going to be a few more, but they're only a few of a kind. Uh, similarly experiences some of the things that I'm offering. Again, only a few of each of these uh, for folks to come out here. I have in the past offered personal formulas, right? Which is a combination of like magically and aromatically, you know, something for you to wear every day that gets you to where you want to be for the year to come. So having that process, not just virtually, right? Come in person, sit with me in the lab. Let's consult, smell the herbs. Let's pick these out together. Let's work on this together. Let's have you in the room for the ritual rather than just a picture of you. Let's, you know, so a few opportunities to do that. I'm going to be having some gatherings around the country, small gatherings, 12 people, 18 people, where we'll do, you know, some some teaching, some practicing, some ritual, and kind of trying to stagger those geographically to make it convenient for everyone. I'm doing a camping trip with my friend Ed's manifesto. It's only a few people, um, but, you know, we'll go camp for a week in the desert and what will happen will happen and it'll be unlike anything else. Presumably, we're going to um, be legalizing mushrooms here in Colorado in about two months. And we have a provisional entheogenic experience that we're bringing together. Um, all very small group things at, at maximum. And the idea is really all of the facets that my nonprofit work goes into and that the maker space is in support of. And then the whole community that's really become this network of friends and peers and colleagues that I interact with regularly, just creating a big crossroads for all of that in, again, that experiential way. And there's some virtual stuff, you know, obviously memberships to the makerspace. I'm going to be doing my whole webinar library. There's going to be like a very good package deal on that and some stuff that I'm working with some friends to include all their webinars. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to travel or, or be in a room with another person if that's not for you. But hopefully things that are a little more special than, hey, I came up with this cool product. Let's make a bunch of them so it's cheap. It's right. sort of, which is the ethos of Kickstarter. So I'm kind of taking the ethos of the makerspace and sort of inverting that and then the ethos of Kickstarter and inverting that. Hopefully two negatives makes a positive here. Incredible. Okay, yeah, that sounds that sounds very enticing. Okay, then I will direct people to that. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and talking oh, about you. all this stuff. It's, it's really been a pleasure. I, uh, I, I, I really appreciate a lot of your questions, and the, you know, you you were able to cover a broad range of things that I haven't had an opportunity to think about or share about, and I'm really grateful for it. Thank you, Cooper. Well, I'm so pleased. A million thanks to Hoodoo Moses. I will have links in the show notes to where you can get involved in that Kickstarter and also find out other stuff about him. It was a great chat. So happy to have had it. Thank you for listening. This has been listener-supported Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Bafestam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead.